Okay? Now, I'm going to be with you guys up here for the next five weeks. So here's what I need. I need to know you're with me. Okay? You can give me a thumbs up. You can head nod. You can shout out. I don't care. I just need to know that you're with me. Or else it's going to be a long five weeks for both of us. Is that fair? Thank you. All right. This side, you're good. This side, come on. I need a little more from you, okay? All right. Hey, we're going to dive into our scripture passage today. Before we do that, I want to pray again. And before you're like, man, we were praying a lot this morning, my answer to that is, yeah, we are. Right? Hallelujah. Thank you. Yes. But I do want to, we pray this prayer every week. You've probably noticed this. And I invite you to pray it as well. Because what it is for me, and I hope for you too, is it's a reminder that nothing that happens here is from our work. The conviction, the growth, it's not as a result of what we've done. It's a result of who is here among us. So let's pray this morning, then we'll dive in. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In your holy name, amen. All right, you're in the book of James. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, James, I'm so excited. James is my favorite book of the whole Bible. And my question to those people is, why? (laughs) Have you really read it? (laughs) James is a dangerous book. James is a very practical book, but the reason why sometimes I struggle with the book of James is because James gets into your business. And I don't know about you, but I don't like when people get into my business. But it's important for us to point out the reason why James, from the very beginning, is going to dive headfirst into your business. James chapter 1, verse 1, look how he starts his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now we're going to stop there. Some of you guys are like, oh man, we're stopping at verse 1, and I don't think anything's even really happened yet. No, a lot has happened in this verse already, I promise you. Because here's what's happening here. James is writing. So James, we're talking the younger, the half-brother of Jesus. He's this respected church leader. He's kind of helping in the formation of of the church and, and teaching them. And he's writing to, who does he say? To the dispersed Christians. He's writing to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion. Another appropriate term for this would be scattered. So he's writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered. And why are they scattered? They, they most likely grew up and they had a, a, a life that was pretty cemented in and around Jerusalem and the Palestine area, but now they've been forced to leave in the face of extreme religious persecution. It is no longer safe for them to stay where they are. And so in a very short time, all of these Christians are now going all over other parts of the world. And I want you to see this early on, what these people may see and and should see as a very, very big, painful, scary uprooting, James sees as a huge opportunity. So he says, I'm writing to this church that's dispersed. 
and what he's going to try to communicate and the lens through which I want us to see this letter over the next few weeks is this, that a life touched by the love of God is a life transformed by the love of God. And I would add, and I know this isn't on the screen or in your notes, but this one's, this one's free. It's also a life that's sent by the love of God. A life that's touched by the love of God is a life that's transformed by the love of God is also a life sent by the love of God. And that's the message that James is trying to teach them. That in great numbers, followers of Jesus are now pouring over into various parts of the world. Is there struggle? Absolutely. Hardship? Yes. Sorrow? Yes. But what James is trying to put into their minds is that there is something greater at work than even what you can see right now. That the suffering and the challenges that you're facing are very real, but God has sent you with a mission and a message that gives you great hope, no matter where your suffering may take you. And church, I firmly believe that the same is true for us today. I've heard it said this way, and, and you'll hear me say this several times over the course of this, this series, but James is Christianity on street level. I really like that phrase because sometimes, you know, we're preaching through different books of the Bible and sometimes we just kind of live up here, right? They're, they're meant to be very theologically heavy and, and we're just kind of dealing with things that we kind of understand but, but don't quite understand maybe and so we need to unpack those. James is very much street level. We'll talk about this more next week, but what James does is he takes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he takes the book of Proverbs and he says, okay, here's what that looks like. Here's practically how you live these things out. Because let's be honest, when it comes to believing and becoming the gospel, it can be confusing. And it can be messy. And the message that James wants us to hear is, yes, that is true. But the gospel is also God's love story that's so expansive and so sturdy that I want to show you what it's like when God's love transforms you and shapes how you live day to day. So he continues in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now think about this for just a second. Because who are we addressing here? We're addressing a group of people that just had to leave everything that they've known, that are under immense religious persecution, going into places that they don't know. And the first thing, the first thing that James says, this guy's counted as joy. I mean, how many of us hate when people do that? Let's just be honest for a second. Right? Like you go to a friend or, or a spouse or a family member and you're like, man, here's, just, here's what's happening and I thought my life was going to go this way, but now it's really going this way. And they're like, well, you know, when God closed the door, he opens a window. <laughs> Church, we should never say that. <laughs> Ever. 
But right, sometimes we, we have these people that they, their response just kind of feels like what they're saying is, hey, just get over it. Right? Like you're, you're, not, you're not believing enough or you, you, know, you don't have enough faith and so that, that kind of feels that way. And it's easy to take what James says as that, like he's coming at this pretty unsympathetically, and, and, but it's actually extremely encouraging, which is why he starts this way. Count it as joy. When you face trials, and what does he say? Of various kinds. He throws that word various in there, which annoys me. I'm going to tell you why it annoys me, because that means he's also talking to me today. Right? We can't play the, well, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to leave O'Fallon because of extreme religious persecution, and so nothing that James says really affects me. No, what he says is counted as joy when you face trials of various kinds. Whatever that may be. Remember I said earlier, God anticipated your struggle. This is evidence of that because messiness and suffering and challenges and difficulties is the God-anticipated universal experience of us all. We know what it's like. We've been there. Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. So not only are we sent with an important mission, carrying an important message, we're taking it to a world that hates us. And James says, count it as joy. Which should lead us to the question that hopefully you're asking right now. Why? Why do we count it as joy? Two things I want to give you very quickly this morning that as I said, are also kind of going to be some foundational pillars that will set us up for the weeks ahead. And the first thing is this. Our Savior is never separated from our suffering. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but I believe that somebody in this room needs to be reminded that God is with you right now in the midst of the trouble that you're in. That his word reminds us, right, that, that we may be pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not what? Destroyed. Church, our Savior is never separated from our suffering. I've said this before, but I love this, this imagery of so many of us who are, who are dads or, or, or grandpas or whatever, and, and how do you teach a kid to swim? Well, some of us learn because we just got tossed in. And sometimes we, we look at our Heavenly Father as the same way, that he just said, okay, hope it goes well. If you really need me, I'm here. But that's not, that's not the Heavenly Father that we serve, church. He's one that doesn't toss us into the depths of life. He wades into those depths with us. He's not outside, he's alongside. And I know you may be thinking, yeah, I, I understand all that, but what I've found for my own life and different people I've talked to is that's an easy truth that's also easy to forget. And so we need to be reminded our Savior is never 
apart from our suffering. And if I can share a couple of truths that I've learned just from my own experience in life, is that a view of suffering apart from God is one that acknowledges, acknowledges that that suffering exists, but denies it any meaning. Let me say that again because it's important. A view of suffering that doesn't have God in the equation at all is a view that acknowledges, yes, there is for sure suffering here, but it's pointless. It's pointless. Right? Our society often has this, this secular view of suffering that it's all just this random result of chance or your own poor choices or, or whatever that may be, and it doesn't have any meaning or design behind it. Because if we live life and our highest goal is self-fulfillment and pleasure, then when suffering happens, it's just something that gets in the way of that. It's an annoyance. It doesn't mean anything. But the flip side of that is that a view of suffering in which Jesus accompanies us is one that acknowledges its existence while assuring its greatest meaning. Now, one of those sounds way better than the other. But church, how many times do we just live on this side where it's like, man, all this stuff is just going on in my life and it's just annoying and it's super inconvenient and I'm just ready to get through it and be done and go back to life, you know, happy and normal? Versus, you know what? Yes, there's suffering here and there's pain here and there's challenges here. And yes, I am eager to get to the other side, but while I'm in it, I want to come open-handed with it and say, Jesus, I know you're with me. And I know that if I stand in faith with you, that you will bring about the deepest meaning possible out of this that I'm in. And the greatest picture of that, I believe, is Jesus, the very Son of God, suffered intensely on earth. When you consider the physical torture and the emotional pain and the spiritual anguish that he endured, he suffered more than anyone in history ever has or ever will. But it was through his suffering that his ultimate purpose for coming to earth was fulfilled. Through his sacrifice on the cross that we have been offered peace and salvation and forgiveness. We sing it, right? It's not in spite of his wounds we were healed. It's what? By his wounds we are healed. And I believe that Jesus had that in mind as he's on that cross. And I believe that even in the anguish and the pain, he had joy. And in that same truth, church, we can find great comfort and hope. Paul writes in Romans Chapter 8, he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, 
or nakedness or danger or sword. And the list can go on and on and on. And Paul's answer is what? I'm inviting your participation here. Paul's answer is what? No. No. Church, do you believe it? Paul says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who's loved us. We are more than just getting by. We are more than just making it through. We are more than conquerors because of Jesus. All right, you still with me? All right, one more thing. This is the second pillar that we're going to be building on over the next few weeks. It is this. Our Savior will equip us along the way. So our suffering, our Savior is never separated from our suffering. That's truth one. Truth two is our Savior will equip us along the way. I love this quote. I may have used it here before, but C.S. Lewis once said this. He says, most of us don't really want a, a, a father in heaven. We want a grandfather, Right? My, my wife and I, we took our, our four kids uh, to, to the beautiful uh, country of Danville yesterday. It's pretty hopping out there, guys. Just check it out. Went out to Danville. They're camping out there this weekend. So we went out there, and, and we just hung out with them. And the kids did some swimming, and they had popsicles, and they had all these, like, fruity drinks and snacks and watching movies. You know what I'm talking about? I can't wait to be a grandparent. Right, because it's like, it's like, okay, I can do all these fun things, and then at the end of the day, hey, have a great night. Have a great night. Go home. Go home. Right, and then for, next, for the next 24 hours, what do my wife and I have to deal with? Can we watch a movie? Can we have a popsicle? Can we go swimming? But that's what C.S. Lewis is describing, right? We want a heavenly grandfather. We want somebody, this is, this, is how, this is how he says it. He says, a senile benevolent. I, that's C.S. Lewis's words, not mine. I didn't write them. That's in quotes. A senile benevolent who only wants to see the young people enjoy themselves and whose plan for the universe is that by the end of each day, everyone would say, we had a good time. I think there's a lot of truth in that, though. Right? We want this God that's like, oh, yeah, you you want to do that? Go for it. You want to live that way? Yes. I support it. Have a good time. But look what James says that God wants for us. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, there's, there's a lot of powerful phrases in just those two verses. And I, I think for me, one of the most powerful in all of that is how he starts, for you know. 
that James, as he's writing this, he believes that he's writing to a people who shouldn't be surprised by what he's saying. They should know this. That if we truly believe in a God who is in control over all things, he's sovereign, he rules over all, he's in all, through all, then it should not be surprising to us that he wants us to get to the deepest life possible for his greater purpose. But my question is, I wonder if if sometimes we, we really want the equipping that God says he'll give us. Don't get me wrong, I want the end. That sounds really good. I, I want a life that's perfect and complete, that's lacking in nothing. But testing my faith? Yeah. Steadfastness? I don't, I don't know about that. We don't want to go through the process. And I think the reason, for me anyway, I won't speak for you, the reason why I struggle in that is because it requires a great humility. It requires a humility that, that knowing that my Savior that walks with me, that never is separated from my suffering or my struggle, he also looks at me here and now at every phase of life that I'm in, and he sees where I'm lacking. And I don't want people to know where I'm lacking. I want to celebrate my strengths and cover up my weaknesses. And God says, no, I see it all. I see it all. And what this requires of me is to admit that, that even as much as, as much as I would like to believe I do, I don't always say the right thing, do the right thing, choose the right thing, think the right thing. And what I truly need is refinement. And friends, we all know how refinement happens. It's through fire. C.S. Lewis, he finishes his quote with the senile old people, and he says this. He says, the trouble is our Father in heaven wants more for us than happiness. He wants our holiness. More than happiness, he wants our holiness. He wants us to be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. What that's saying to us, church, is that he wants us to be rebuilt into the image of Christ. So over the course of this letter, what he does is he, he's going to hit on different characteristics, different parts of our character, which makes this, remember I said James gets all up in your business, that's what happens when you talk about character. He's going to hit on all these different character traits, these inward qualities that are essential to be mindful of in our spiritual growth. And the first quality he addresses here is he says, steadfastness. And what is steadfastness? In its simplest way that I can define it, I would say it's this. It's having a fixed direction with a firm purpose. Having a fixed direction with a firm purpose. Now think about that for a second. A fixed direction. Friends, God has, by his grace, chosen us. 
Not just to sit around. Not just to stay comfortable in our own circles. But to be part of his kingdom agenda. To know what it means to find joy in participating in the expansive purposes of the kingdom. To find joy in the mission in which we are sent. And as we do that, to begin to find joy in the suffering that we face along the way because he's with me and he's equipping me. And in our fixed direction, we have a firm purpose. And sometimes this is even the hardest part of all because it doesn't just mean that we speak a certain way or act a certain way or conduct relationships in a certain way or use our money in a certain way. It means that we share the message behind the why that we do those things. We tell people why we live that way. Husbands and wives, you talk about why you want your marriage to be a certain way. Parents, you tell your kids why you are treating them a certain way. Employees, employers, you tell each other why you interact in a certain way. Because, church, it should be different. It should look different. Because we've been given a firm purpose that the rest of the world doesn't have. But the trick about all of it is that steadfastness isn't something that you just make up in your heart. It's not about the books you read about it. The podcasts you listen to that deal with it. No, it's a product of grace that comes as the Holy Spirit works in and through you in uncomfortable ways. You've heard this said before, but I firmly believe this is true, that God will take you where you never intended to go in order to produce in you what you could never grasp on your own. God will take you places, church, if you wake up in the morning with humility, ready to stand in faith no matter what will happen, God will take you places, church, that you never intended to go. And because God is a God who gives generously, he will give you things that you could never achieve on your own. And he will give them to you in abundance. But I confess, most of the time I would rather be comfortable than be holy. I would rather be affirmed than be hated. I would rather be a wanderer, if I'm honest, than committed to that kind of fixed direction. One that's going to require my humility and my refinement. But I want to challenge us in this together as we wrap up this morning. And I want you to listen to these statements and ask yourself if you've ever been there. But when you think about it, a heart that is ruled by comfort gets angry at the first sign of chaos. A heart that's ruled by control 
gets discouraged when things get out of control. A heart that's ruled by the affirmation of others struggles with insecurity when that affirmation isn't there. And a heart that wanders is a heart that's lost. And so I want to very practically ask you to consider this week, this month, this year, wherever you're at, what would your heart look like if it was ruled by a Savior who walks with you and equips you in every step of the way? A heart that's been touched by the love of God. Would it be angry? Probably not. Discouraged? Probably not. Insecure? Probably not. Lost? Probably not. Why? Because what does God want for you? To go with you into the deepest life possible. to take you to a place where you can count it all as joy because you know whose you are and because you know that you're being refined and transformed to complete, perfect holiness, lacking nothing. Let's pray. God, Father, we confess this morning the areas of our heart and life, God, that we still keep so closed-handed. God, for friends in here that are grappling on to so much anger, so much grief, addiction, depression, insecurity, guilt, shame. God, I pray even right now in this moment, God, that your Holy Spirit would move in them to know what it feels like to open those hands. To allow your presence to minister to them. to remind them that they don't sit alone. To remind them that with you, suffering does have meaning. And God, that with you, you desire for us things that we could never ask for or imagine. So God, for all of us this morning, I pray that we as a church God, that we would take up the responsibility, that we would grow in steadfastness, to recognize that we are here for a mission. We are here with a message, a message that brings life and healing. God, that we are here to make much of your name, the only name by which we are saved.
In Jesus' name, amen.